Hey everyone and welcome to the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast, here to help you thrive as a follower of Jesus wherever you are. For today's episode, I caught up with Phil Moore to discuss leadership in a time of crisis, as well as the challenges posed by pain and suffering. Phil leads Everyday Church London and is the course director for New Ground's leadership training program, The Academy. He is a prolific writer and has authored 26 books now, including 20 devotional Bible studies in his Straight to the Heart series. He's written on over 50 of the Bible's 66 books, and so, you know, not many left to go now. His latest book on the book of Job tackles the problem of pain head on. And so I felt it would be a great way to kick things off on this podcast. You can purchase copies of Phil's books by going to Amazon or by visiting philmorebooks.com. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the channel and share it with your friends. But for now, let's dive straight into my conversation with Phil Moore. Enjoy. Phil, welcome. Great to have you. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be with you, Jess. Uh, well, today, Phil, uh, you've recently written a book uh, as part of your Straight to the Heart devotional commentary series on the book of Job in the Old Testament, which is the book that famously deals with the question of suffering and pain in the Christian's life. And so I'd love to ask you questions about that, mm. particularly about of everything that we've been through over the last six months. And I know much of the confusion, uncertainty, pain and angst that's in the church. I'm sure you've got some really helpful things to say on that. Uh, before we jump into that, that would be great to just to get your reflections and thoughts on the past six months. Uh, give me one thing that you've you've learnt either about yourself or about leadership um, in this current pandemic. <laughs> I think just about everything we've learned about leadership has been thrown up in the air, hasn't it? I think um, the last six months have been one of the biggest learning moments for every Christian leader, for every church. I'm praying for the coronavirus pandemic to end quickly. But I'm also praying for the church and for every Christian leader to learn the lessons we're meant to learn from it. Um, it would be such a shame to go through these six, six, nine, whatever, however many months it's going to be, uh, mm. and to emerge out the other side and to celebrate being back. I want us to be back, but different. And so, yeah, I've definitely learned loads. I don't even know where to begin. But I think probably the single biggest thing is just the realization that we are not the best judges of whether or not we're fruitful. There are some mm. things I've done in my in my pre-COVID ministry, if I can put it that way, um, that seemed incredibly fruitful. And then mm. COVID hits and you realize in 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul talks about the day of Jesus revealing what was built with, with gold, silver, wood, hay or straw. There are some mm. things that you think these are massive, you know, these are really key to our church. Um, and they just get burnt up in a moment when you can't do something as simple as gather people in a room. And there are other things that you think are actually quite inconsequential. You're doing them, but they're like little mustard seeds. Um, and you think, well, you, yeah, we'll do it. We'll be faithful, but it's not very important. And suddenly COVID hits and you realize, man, this is absolutely vital. So, you know, things like the small group life of church and some of the little prayer groups within church and some of just the organic friendships, which, you know, no church pastor spends much time concentrating on at all. But then you realize this whole network of organic friendships and of organized small groups. Matt, this was where the life of the church always was. Mm. Uh, but as pastors, you can spend all your time tweaking your Sunday service, thinking, if only my hosting team were a bit better. 
And if only I could find a slightly funnier anecdote for my sermon than revival would come. I think you realise what's gold and silver and what's really hay and straw. Wow. Yeah, you've certainly seen the lifeblood of the church exposed, isn't it? And yeah. for good or bad, you know, you've seen what we've really built is the community that's going to last rather than the, the Sunday experiences. But that's presumably not to say that Sunday mornings and gathering with the people of God in that sense and sitting under teaching is something that you think we don't need to do in the future. No, uh, but I get no. you're saying you're, you're, you're rethinking the emphasis of time that you perhaps put into it. Is that right? That's exactly right. So uh, I'm desperate for us to start meeting again on a Sunday. I can't wait to have hundreds of people in one room, shoulder to shoulder, worshipping Jesus with one voice. Any pastor who doesn't long for that, it's like, read the Bible. Um, but I think there's this whole kind of paraphernalia that goes with that. So I've mm. signed up to uh, a number of kind of church leadership coaches. Uh, and this is not from America, the one I'm going to mention. It's, uh, it's easy for us to think, oh, it's just an American thing. No, no, this is someone who's not from America. Um, but I'll get emails in my inbox saying things like, I can help you grow your church. I almost did an American accent, but it isn't <laughs> American. Uh, sometimes as Brits, we can think, oh, this side of the Atlantic, we've got our feet on the ground. No, um, a non-American who writes to me things like, I can grow your church. That's like the message in the inbox. It's like, I can show you three ways to grow your church. It's like, Jesus builds the church. It says it in Matthew 18. It's, 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 it's not that hard to get your head around it. Uh, and uh, sometimes, uh, Matthew 16, uh, sometimes we just lose the plot. So I am totally committed to getting back together on a Sunday, but I'm also totally committed to not doing the same things when we gather back on a Sunday and to not having the same priorities when we gather back on a Sunday. Yeah, wow. I mean, it's, in one sense, it's entirely natural that pastors, as pastors, we respond like that. We get paid a wage by a congregation to lead the church, and we interpret that as being, work as hard as I can for the health of this thing. And what do I do? Well, I can preach, so I'm going to spend all my energy and time focusing on that one yeah. thing. Um, but I tell you, at the start of lockdown, you you wrote about uh, James Fraser, something mm. that I found really and inspiration at the start. Can you just remind us about that and how much that has perhaps played on your mind or sat in your mind during the last six months? Yeah, so this was a, a, a blog on the Think Theology website um, where I was just remembering a story from the life of James Fraser, who was a missionary to China at the start of the 20th century. Uh, most people don't know his name, but they reckon that the revival that began out of the blue through his ministry at the beginning of the 20th century is the seed which planted the massive revival we saw at the end of the 20th century in China. So wow. very successful missionary. Um, and he writes about um, his frustrations, about the fact that he was reaching villages in the, in the Tibetan mountains, the Himalayas. And uh, there, were, there were times of the year when he just couldn't get to his converts in these mountain villages. The passers were... Over, overladen with snow, there'd been avalanches. He would have three or four months of the year where he just couldn't get to these people, these churches he planted. And he was frustrated about it. And he came to a resolution in God. And he said, I'm going to do an experiment. All the time I would have spent traveling to those churches, sitting with those churches, preaching at those churches, hands on with those churches, I'm going to block that time out in my diary and I'm going to stay home and I'm going to pray for those churches. And when the summer comes 
and the winter snow thaws, I'll see the results of my experiment. And famously, his experiment showed that the villages where he'd been able to visit the churches and had preached there and discipled people and hadn't been able to pray because he'd been busy, they had prospered less well than the places he hadn't been able to get to, but had just been on his knees for. And my challenge at the start of lockdown for myself, but I thought I'd share it more broadly through Think Theology, was, is God calling us to do the same thing? So I've been, you know, I don't want to brag about my prayer life, but, you know, it's not been as good as I wanted it to be. But I've learned stuff about prayer during lockdown. I've learned stuff about fasting. I've learned stuff about authority. I've learned stuff about spiritual warfare in lockdown. And I would genuinely say I've, I've spent more time talking to God for people as opposed to talking to people for God. And I think the fruit of that is going to be similar to James Fraser, much better. And I remember James Fraser saying, you know, I used to think prayer should be first, teaching second, but now I think prayer should be first, second, third, and teaching maybe fourth. Presumably that's not just the case for, for Christian leaders, but for Christians in general. Um, so what kind of, yeah, how, what would you say to people who are trying to work out how to integrate prayer into their lives and the, some of the lessons that you've, you've learned them and you're learning them, or some of the disciplines that you've perhaps put in place that people could, could benefit from? Mm, mm, I think that's a really good question. I think that's one of the other big lessons we've been learning during the coronavirus crisis, the lesson of Sabbath. And so um, one of my fellow elders here at uh, Everyday Church, a guy called David Featherston, his read on on the pandemic quite early on was uh, we've been a rushed, crazy, busy, stressed out generation for years. Um, and within the church, we've possibly been more stressed out and crazy busy than even the world. We're meant to be the cure. We're part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And Dave's, Dave's read of the crisis, which I agree with, uh, is that uh, there's a verse in the Old Testament uh, referring to the Babylonian exile, where God says through one of the prophets, I will give you all the Sabbaths that you haven't taken during your time in Babylon. And I think we've tried to embrace as a church um, the crisis as a moment for us to relearn what it means to Sabbath. And so I think for every Christian, whether you're a church leader or not, actually, there are kind of vital principles so i don't even think it's about prayer because there's a danger that we turn prayer and fasting into a work we put our faith in not eating or we put our faith in going through a list of requests now prayer and fasting are really about intimacy they're about friendship with god and friendship takes time so these rhythms are about time so on a sunday i'm at the church building a lot less than i used to be And so Sunday for me can now become a day where I pursue intimacy with God, a holy day, a Sabbath, Um, the rhythms of life. Uh, I'm not leaving the house early to get to early morning meetings. We've got an early morning prayer meeting as a church, but but actually I've I've got some devoted time each morning before I start my work day to enjoy God's friendship. I can take a lunch break, something I've, I've never taken a lunch break in my working life. I can actually take some time out. I did the other day, just in the middle of working for God, just to recenter myself on God. Did me a lot of good. And evenings, you know, actually getting into the habit 
I, I made a mistake early on in lockdown because I was working from home and I had my laptop. I was working into the evenings and realizing, no, the sun goes down for a reason. And that moment where you say it's dinner time, I'm going to be with my family. And now the kids have gone to bed. And actually, there's a moment for me just to enjoy being with God. And so I think for all of us, these principles of Sabbath, daily rhythms, uh, saying enough's enough. It's about friendship with God. And I really feel like God's cleared out some of the activities so we can actually get to know him better. Wow. Wow, Phil, I mean, we could stop recording now. That is just beautiful and so, so helpful. So important. I love what you said, that we can turn not eating and into going through a prayer list as a work that we do. And we turn it into a technique then, almost like the old magicians would with their spells. I must say these words and do this thing. And I must make sure I say in the name of Jesus at the end of my prayer. Yeah. You're absolutely right. We've been called to friendship with God which involves partnering with him throughout everything that is just beautiful so thank you so much yeah. for that and if you know God intimately which I'm not I'm not claiming I do I know him better than I did at the start of lockdown um but if we know God intimately with one command you can have an answer to your prayer if you don't know God intimately you can shout at God all night and see nothing mm. And I remember listening to someone say that um, it was an American pastor who said that a month before the pandemic, his region was hit by a tornado. They were just regrouping from that. And then the pandemic hit. And mm. he's learned that in a crisis, what the people need is a non-anxious presence in their community for Christians to embody that just a different way of being in the world uh, than the than, than the world perhaps is able to do so um how yeah is that something that you've observed or you'd bear witness to the importance of christians whether in leadership or not just in the world in their communities because of friendship with god how are we able to respond differently to the various trials and chaoses that we go through well well isn't that it though i mean isn't that the fragrance of christ right you know, that that in a, p- people need to hear our words about Jesus. People can't guess the gospel. We need to tell them the gospel. But they're not going to be interested in the gospel unless we are gospel. And so, wow, just that that witness of not being so stressed out, of knowing God's got it under control, of being at peace with God. You know, I've been reading... Uh, been reading The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis during lockdown, right, old Christian classic. He basically says, if you're at peace within yourself, you will bring peace wherever you go. If you're at turmoil within yourself, you will bring turmoil wherever you go. Actually, that is a really good Christian lesson that sometimes our prayer times, can they're, they're just being anxious in front of God. And prayer times are coming to peace in God. He is the God of peace. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is peace and being with God and then coming out of the presence of God. I think it's the equivalent of Moses coming down Mount Sinai, his face shining. We come out of our time worshipping, enjoying God, and we don't have to tell the people around us that we've got a Christian gospel that they ought to listen to. They see some Christian gospel that makes them thirsty to hear what we have to say. Mm. That's really good. Uh, actually, we're going to, all of this, I think, is helpful introduction to the book of Job, which we're going to come uh, on. Yeah. But I think um, just I want to pick up on that theme of peace, if I can, because there's obviously a, a dire need for, for peace in our world. And 
more and more in society, there's an embracing of like pseudo Eastern religious forms of peace or accent. Yeah, that. yeah. And I just love to hear your reflections as a pastor and as a thoughtful Christian. What do you? What are some of the things you think are great that the society's interested in, communities are interested in when it comes to how to get peace and meditative techniques and various things, mindfulness? But then also beyond that, what's some of the differences between that type of peace, peace as the world gives, perhaps, and the peace of Christ that you were just saying. Yeah. How does Thomas Akempis know that inner peace within himself? It sounds yeah. like Eastern at times. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah. And yeah, it's interesting when you read when you read people who've really known Christ. They can sound a bit like Eastern religion. Uh, you know, like um, the founder of the Quakers refers to the Holy Spirit as the inner light. And you think, well, this is a bit um, Eastern meditation until you turn to Colossians 1.27, which pretty much does describe God within us as the inner light. Um, So I don't think we need to be scared of inner peace as if it's something that's owned by Buddhist monks. This is our inheritance. uh, And the the demonic deception is uh, that because we haven't got it, uh, that it, it is somehow foreign to Christianity. Christianity is a religion of peace. It, it's it's about fundamentally having the Holy Spirit who is peace. Christ is our peace, and we have him in our heart. So fundamentally, uh, when when human beings became enemies with God, they uh, they swapped peace for conflict. And very quickly, Adam and Eve start having not peace, but conflict with one another. So part of what it means to have peace is simply to come to peace with God. And because you're at peace with God, you don't fight with other people anymore. So I've got people who annoy me, if I'm honest. Um, and and to me, the last six months, they've annoyed me more than usual. I've probably annoyed them more than usual as well. But I've actually learned to embrace some of that annoyance as actually God trying to trying to just kind of work his peace out from within me. Mm. Uh, so uh, I think if you're at peace within yourself, what other people think of you doesn't matter very much. Because reality is, if someone is mean to me and speaks ill of me, well, God knows the truth. They can't make me any worse than I actually am, because God knows. Mm. And if someone praises me and flatters me, they can't make me any better than I am because God knows. And when you realize actually my identity, my value, my reputation, my, you know, whether or not I'm doing a good job as a pastor, uh, if, if that's dependent on God within me, you know, peace. Mm. So I think that it, it's all tied up with trying to find your fulfillment in the world or in Christ alone. Mm. I'm done with the former. I'm totally. I, I want peace with Christ alone because I know that if I if I nourish that peace within me, I emanate peace around me. Mm. If I haven't got that peace within me, I start causing trouble all around me. Wow, so helpful. I'm yeah, so appreciate your comments on that. Um, well, let's come to let's come to talking about Job, and I think the the way in from what you were just discussing then is that Job. When you read much of Job, he doesn't come across as a man of peace. He's a man in inner turmoil and agony. Obviously, he's he's hurting, so he's in a lot of pain. And a lot of the book is perhaps his trying to reconcile what's going on in the world with what he knows about God and knows about himself and fighting for peace in one yeah. sense. Um, yeah. 
So for, for some people listening to this, they will think I'm a Christian and um, I'm really struggling to find peace, if I'm honest, because things are really, really hard and I'm finding it really, really difficult. And maybe like Job's friends, I've got some people saying some really unhelpful things to me. But actually, I mean, it's a, it's a big question, but can you give us an overview of the journey of Job <laughs> through his book from that place of turmoil into its conclusion? Because it, the conclusion at the end, sorry, can look a little bit like, Peace comes from prosperity because, hey, look, you get it. He gets it all back again at the end. So don't worry. Just keep going and you'll get healthy and happy again. That's a lot of words. A lot of yeah. words. What are your reflections yeah. and comments on that? Well, I can give you a pithy answer. And obviously, it's only going to be a pithy answer. I would really recommend people who really want to grapple with the thing of, of suffering. I would recommend they get a copy of Straight to the Heart of Job uh, because I I've been writing this commentary series for 10 years. Wow. Um, I've always wanted to write Job because it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. And I've never felt it was right to write it. And then I wrote this commentary when I did. I just felt now's the time. I don't know why. I just felt now's the time to do Job. Uh, and it was published about a week before lockdown happened. So so I think in the economy of God, it is a, it is a book that will answer people's questions. So I think if you want a proper answer, go through the book slowly and hopefully my, my devotional commentary will help. But in a nutshell, um, Job is a man who has to fight for peace. And I think that's actually quite a helpful lesson. Peace, uh, peace doesn't come by emptying your mind. Peace comes by filling your mind with the right things. Uh, and actually, that is a battle. You know, we have to strive to rest. We have to fight for peace. That's part of the Christian battle. So I think there's a, just a lesson in that. But I also think part of Job's battle is Job is trying to find answers to his questions because he's living in about 1900 BC. So Job is probably the earliest book written in the Bible. There are events in, in Genesis that take place before the book of Job, like the Garden of Eden, obviously. But Job is happening around the time of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So basically, Job has no scriptures to turn to. He, he knows about God, but he's grappling to find questions about God. And, and quite, quite a lot of the book is devoted to the things that Job discovers about Jesus. He prophesies about Jesus and he asks questions that are only answered in Jesus again and again and again. And we mustn't look at Job and think, well, this is Job's struggle. We're going, to struggle like, we're going to struggle like Job. We must not struggle like Job. He's struggling because he doesn't know the answers. We know Jesus Christ. We've been given the answers. We may, we may struggle to believe the answers, but Job is struggling to even find the answers. So Job struggles in the dark. We struggle at least in the light. We live in a glorious new place that Job saw dimly in his book, but he, he barely scratched the surface of what we now know in Jesus Christ. One of the things that can sometimes be an obstacle to people receiving Job is the confusion about, am I supposed to read this as a, as a historical? Did this happen? Or is it something else? Because when you read it, it reads a lot more like a play, a Shakespearean play, for example, with a long yeah. And yet it begins with prose. So you think, okay, this might be history, but it's it sounds like it's supernatural history because it's talking about God and Satan and the heavenly courtroom. But then it ends in history. Um, 
So what are just really helpful because sometimes that can be for me at least um, a block yeah. of really hearing it because I'm struggling with yeah, but did this happen? Yeah. What are your yeah. thoughts on that? So Job definitely happened. There was a man called Job, and things happened to him as the book of Job tell us they happened to him. Uh, the book of Job was almost certainly not written by Job, however. The Hebrew in the in the prologue and the epilogue is very different from the Hebrew that is used in the speeches. So it's I, I would say with a great degree of certainty that somebody else compiled the book of Job in order to tell Job's story. Uh, it's scripture, so we know that when he says, Job said this and Bildad said that, that they genuinely did say those things. But I don't believe that Job necessarily spoke in poetry. And, you know, part of the book of Job is an acrostic poem. I don't think that in the middle of his agony, he wrote down his thoughts as an acrostic poem. So what the what the writer has done is he has taken this genuine history. He's taken genuine conversations that took place and he has crafted them together in beautiful Hebrew poetry um, in a way which is accurate. And yet you would be misreading the genre of the book of Job if you said Job said these exact words in this exact way. It's a poetic retelling of their conversation, but it's an accurate depiction of their conversation, um, even though it's put in poetry form. So I think you're right to look at it and think this is a poem. It's a bit like a play, but that's totally different from saying it didn't really happen. So, so it is a... Now, like you, you get this in scripture, you get a selective and stylized retelling of history, which is accurate, but more helpful for us in the format by which we're given it. Wow, that's, again, really helpful. Thank you. I've often wondered with that and struggled. I mean, in, our, in the Hebrew Bible, of course, it's placed among the wisdom literature rather than the history. So I guess it is that kind of blending yeah. of two genres there. That's really helpful. Um, I've noticed you, you wrote in the, the blog that I came across on Think Theology that there were other what are called theophanies, um, explanations of suffering or putting God on trial from the ancient world. Job is a is the Christian theophany. Um, or one yeah, of the, uh, it's theodicy. It's like, it's like an, it's a, an attempt to prove that God is just in spite of suffering. Excellent. We'll, we'll edit out my mispronunciation. <laughs> uh, so the theodicy, great. So you mentioned that there are several theodicies in the ancient world. Yeah. Um, give us a, a, if you can, if you can, give us an overview of just some of the differences between a, the Christian theodicy, the Bible's theodicy, and some of the, the ancient world's wrestlings with that theme as well. Because obviously the theme of suffering is not a new one. The problem of pain is not a new one. Um, what's possibly new uh, and i'd like your comments on this as well is is how much it's a stumbling block for people in the west uh, as opposed to other parts of the world um so we'll come on to that but i'd love to hear your reflections on the former just theodicy in general yeah i mean there are lots of theodicies in the ancient world and that's why it's probably it's probably worth us um recognizing that the book of job was written as part of that corpus of ancient literature um, but the Book of Job is actually quite different. For a start, it's a whole lot longer than most of the theodicies. Sometimes people say, Job, it's so long. How can I read it? Well, the question, why does God allow suffering, uh, is actually quite a big question. So we shouldn't be surprised that God gives us quite a big answer. Mm. So the first thing is it's quite a lot longer. Um, the other is the, the, 
the logic of most of the pagan theodicies is essentially the gods don't care very much about human beings anyway. They're really just out to make themselves look good. We're all sinful. We deserve it. But if we just become slightly better, then the gods will bless us. It's all your own fault, basically. Uh, and the prosperity doctrine of if you pull your act together, you wouldn't be suffering anyway. Well, Job is fundamentally different from that. Job, Job, we're told right from the start, is a righteous, godly man, and yet he then suffers. And so it's, it's, it's actually, although it's in the genre of these other works of theodicy, it just gives a totally, totally different answer. And it's not about, you know, the slot machine of if you do good, God owes you one, karma. Uh, or if you do bad, then you had it coming anyway. Uh, it, it's a, it's around relationship. It's around God's plans for the world. It's about trusting in the character of God, that God knows best, and trusting that God can use even the worst things for good, which, of course, he does with Job. Job is a great example of how God uses suffering for our good. Mm. Wow. And what about this? Is this something you've observed that... Um, it does seem to, I've heard people say this at least, that it, the problem of pain and suffering seems to be a much bigger stumbling block to faith for Westerners than it does in other parts of the world. Uh, do you have any, is that, does that ring true in your experience from things that you've read? And what do you think are some of the reasons for that? And how do we help people uh, move past that? Yeah, I, I think it definitely is the case in my experience, both both in, in Europe um, and America, where people really hate, you know, main reason for rejecting God is why would God allow suffering but also my experiences in Africa and India when I was in the slums of Mumbai a couple of years ago honestly the Christians I met in the slums of Mumbai were not asking why did God allow suffering they were grinning from ear to ear about how good God had been to them and I could not compute how different the, these people living in poverty were responding to God to the people that I would pass the day to day in SW19, one of the richest postcodes in the UK. Um, so yes, I think there is a sense of entitlement. Uh, I think there is a, a an idea that God owes us a nice life. I think as as life in the West has become more and more comfortable, we've got used to that being an inalienable right for humanity. Um, but I wouldn't want to blame people for that. I actually think we as church pastors actually have to carry the can for some of that. I think during lockdown, I've really learned that suffering is a big theme in the Bible. Rejoicing in suffering, which is very hard to do. I don't say it glibly. Um, but I'd, I'd done this discipleship track for my church before lockdown, which was about how do you grow as a Christian and you know, stuff like read the Bible, be filled with the spirit, pray, worship God all good things. Nowhere in there was rejoice in suffering. And I've actually had to go back over it during lockdown and say, actually, we're, we're not making mature disciples. Unless you say to people, the way you grow as a Christian disciple is through suffering and sacrifice. Suffering is difficulty you go through, which you didn't have any choice about. Sacrifice is difficulty you go through that you didn't have to go through but you were willing to go through it because of your love for Jesus. And I've rediscovered a theology of, of, of suffering and sacrifice, which I think has been largely missing in Western churches. And so I'm not pointing the finger at Western Christians and saying, guys, why are you so immature? 
I think as church leaders, we need to really grasp this. We need to preach sacrifice, suffering. So I'm talking about humility. I'm talking about stability, which again, the medieval monks I've been studying, they talk a lot about that. You grow by sacrificing to stay with a group of Christians, even though they annoy you, because that's how you're sanctified. Mm. So you don't switch life group. You don't go to the church down the road because you think it might have a better ministry for you. You stick because the greatest ministry is to struggle with those around you. Mm. Things like poverty. Actually, I, you know, I, I am praying with my wife about how we fundamentally change the way we use our money. And actually, we make radical financial sacrifices because of our love for Jesus. Purity. I think one of the reasons we have problems with sexual purity is we are just not used to saying no to ourselves. And I'm learning through the discipline of fasting. I'm learning to say no to my body when it wants food, desperately wants food. I find it a lot easier in that context to say no to my body when it wants all sorts of other things. It's like learning these these disciplines. Um, I feel like in the West, we haven't talked about suffering and sacrifice and the book of Job screams to us that we we need to get that back in our understanding of God or we will never come to Christian maturity. Gosh, <clears throat> this is superb and so, so challenging. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that. I feel like uh, there's, there's so many thoughts, so many places we could take this. Um, oh, part of, I guess, linked to what you were just saying is I observe so many of the prayers are directed at God, get rid of COVID. God, help us get back to life without COVID. Do you think that is okay to pray things like that? Or do you think that's symptomatic of what you're talking about, our entitled age where we just desire health and prosperity? Uh, what are some of your reflections on what the church should really be praying for at this point? Yeah. I know you shared some of it already. Well, I think it would be a strange Christian that didn't want to pray for the coronavirus crisis to end because it, it's sickness, which we know comes from the devil, uh, and it's causing death and misery. So I think if a Christian stood there glibly and said, oh, I'm not praying for COVID to end, I think God's doing a great work, I think they'd have an incomplete picture. Having said that, I think God's doing a great work. And I do think God's doing things through this. You see, you have two choices of how to suffer. You can suffer in this world for a short season, or you can suffer in hell for eternity. And there are worse things for a nation than to suffer short term in order to come back to God. And there are worse things for Christians than to suffer for a short season in order to come to a full knowledge of Christ. I'm a Christian leader. I'm going to stand before Jesus one day. My salvation is secure. But I'm going to be very embarrassed standing before Jesus if I've been preaching an incomplete gospel. It's good for me. You know, it says in Psalm 119, doesn't it? It was good for me to suffer so that I might learn your word. Uh, it's good for us. And so I'm praying for the season to end. Uh, but I'm praying for it not to end before we've learned these lessons. So my prayers are more about God, help us to learn the lessons we need to learn quickly so that it can end. Mm rather than get us out of this at any cost. Mm, do you, I guess the with with the culture that we're in, particularly in the West, having lost its view of an eternal existence, it, it, it needs to try to load 
maximize pleasure in this life and happiness in this life and so can't tolerate anything uh, any injustice that, that takes a few generations to work out do you think yeah. the church then we've we've lost some of our eternal perspective that at the very least something like this can help us regain yeah i think it does uh, you know i think the verdict of history is that it's easiest to focus on the things of heaven when the things of earth are taken away from you yeah. uh, and that's part of what god's doing in this season for sure it's not that god doesn't want us to be happy in this life in 1 timothy 1 verse 8 i think it is uh, paul refers to god as the happy god the fruit of the spirit is love first of all joy second god wants us to be happy but actually, the things we pursue for happiness do not bring happiness. Pornography will never make anybody happy in the long run. Uh, overeating will never make anyone happy in the long run. Trying to build church in a way that makes you look good as a pastor will never make you happy in the long run. So much your career will not make you happy. in the, So much around us will not make us happy in the long run. And what the coronavirus crisis has done is it's stripped away from us many of the things that weren't going to help us so that we can feast on what will. I feel it's a bit like a parent that takes like a, a dirty sweet wrapper that their child has found on the pavement in a puddle. It's like God has taken that sweet wrapper out of our hands so that he can hand us a bar of chocolate. And it's like we mustn't lament some of the things we're losing in this season mm. because God, what God wants to give us in this season is so much better. Mm, that's really helpful. And even I find it a helpful corrective just to say God does want us to be happy. Yeah. And because sometimes you do hear it said, oh, our problem is our obsession with happiness. Get over it. You need to suffer and you need to embrace sacrifice and almost like a, an aesthetic kind of monkish type existence of denying yourself all pleasures. But of course, even the monks denied themselves worldly pleasures for the belief that there was something much more substantial happy uh, something much happier for them yeah Phil, our time together has come to an end. It's, our time is up. Um, but I just personally want to say thank you so much for the, all the hours of personal study and work you've put in to produce the incredible commentary series that you have. It is such a rich resource for me as a pastor. It's one of my, go, my first go-to whenever I've got to prepare a sermon. But also as a Christian, it, it's something that is just full of color and very accessible. And as the series says, get straight to the heart of like stuff. So, and it gets straight to your heart and the Bible's heart. Uh, so Phil thank you so much I know things like that don't happen easily like there's hours and hours of hard work on your part to serve people like me so thank you very much for that well it's a pleasure Jess and thank you for letting me be on your podcast <laughs> my podcast New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast it's great to have you <laughs> You're welcome back anytime because there's lots of things I'd love to talk to you about um, but this has been a great uh, discussion particularly with uh, everything that's going on at the moment so thank you very much Brilliant. Thanks, Jess. See you soon. See ya. Oh, wow. Wasn't that good? I mean, I love so much just being able to sit and listen to people who've got wisdom like that. Honestly, I think I'll be thinking through much of what Phil has shared for a long time to come. I mean, the stuff on sacrifice and suffering as a necessary part of discipleship, 
that that strikes me as being something of such huge importance and yet is an aspect of the Christian life that very few of us, if we're honest, like talking about or even feel equipped to talk about. And yet it's very biblical, isn't it? Romans 8, 17 says, If you are children of God, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him and then in 1 peter 5 verse 10 after talking about the devil prowling around he says this after you have suffered for a little while the god of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in christ will himself restore confirm strengthen and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever amen to him indeed well Guys, thanks for being with us for this conversation. I hope you found it helpful and encouraging. Don't forget to leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch with me about anything, you can contact me by emailing podcast at newgroundchurches.org. The New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast is part of the New Ground family of churches that aims to help you thrive as a follower of Jesus, no matter where you are or what you're up to. New Ground is part of the New Frontiers network of churches and is committed to raising leaders, impacting communities, planting churches and reaching nations. Well, until next time, God bless you and I look forward to being with you soon. Bye bye.